If you've uh, only just joined us, then can I really encourage you to listen to what was said uh, in the earlier part of this morning? Whilst what I say now I hope will be perfectly intelligible on its own, it builds on what we were talking about some moments ago, and above all else creates the background or the imperative as to why all this is so important and so timely for us at the moment. We're thinking about taking our cue from Jesus And there are three aspects about the life and ministry of Jesus that I'd like us to think about over the next uh, probably about half an hour. And uh, you'll need your Bible for this first one. Let's think about uh, Jesus' core DNA. What are the building blocks, the core building blocks of everything Jesus did? In fact, we discover that the building blocks are not so much uh, uh, things, but relationships, three sets of of relationships that Jesus uh, engaged with. Turn to Luke chapter 6, would you please, in, uh, in the Bible. Perhaps someone can shout out the page number for us. 1033 for Luke chapter 6. 1033. We could illustrate what I'm about to illustrate from almost anywhere in the Gospels. We could have taken almost any section but we'll take it from here for today. Luke chapter 6 and verse 12. On those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. You don't have to read the Bible for more than a couple of minutes to know that everything about what Jesus did was connected up to God. In fact, Jesus would say, uh, in fact, I don't do anything by myself. All that you see me doing is what the Father is doing, is what the Father is saying, and so on and so forth. Jesus was connected up. Verse 13, when morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. And then it's got their names there. He connected up with God. The next thing that Jesus did was to invite others in to be close to him. This was a relationship that would be up close and personal. This was a relationship where they would do life together. The purpose of that relationship, as we've understood from Jesus' calling of the disciples, come, follow me, was that they might be like him, that they might do what the rabbi does, that they might become who the rabbi is. So he invited others in, and then verse 17, he went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples were there, and a great number of people from all Judea, from Jerusalem, and from the coast of Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. So the third component, the third aspect of Jesus' core DNA, is that he was always reaching out to others. And Jesus held those three relationships, or three sets of relationships, in balance right throughout his ministry. And as I say, it doesn't matter where you look in the Gospels, you see these three reflected. He was connected up to God, he built an in-team that were to grow close together, that they might be like him and do what he did, and he reached out. And the challenge for us as individuals, and for us as a church is to think about how balanced we are. You see, typical church, and by that we might mean Burlington as well, typical church is here. We spend most of our time thinking about our connection up to God, and most of our time gathering together one another to pray, encourage, and support one another. So we do our up and we do our in, But as we've been talking about over the last uh, hour or so, we don't do anything like as much out as we do up and in. In fact, we talk about out quite a bit, and we even do events that are supposed to be about the out, but we have to recognize that they're not working very well. Over here, usually you get some kind of wacky evangelist, and we've all met one or two of those. Okay, they're fired up about God, they're desperate about reaching others, and they think church is a complete waste of time because it's full of Christians just sitting on there. Okay, Uh, and then down here, we're here and we pride ourselves as good evangelical Christians that we're not down here fussing about the social gospel. 
So a group of people that gather together, become a team, and reach out, but they don't connect with God. So that's kind of liberal church. We're glad we're not that, and so we pride ourselves that we're not that. We certainly don't want to be that, and therefore we tend to stay quite uncomfortable where we are like that. What does it mean for us to balance those three sets of relationships in our personal lives? Okay, so how much time this last week have you spent up? How much time in? How much time reaching out to others for kingdom's sake? Okay? And then as a church, how much emphasis do we put on up? How much emphasis on in? And how much emphasis on out? You see, typical Christian is here. We might say comfortable Christian. And the do-gooder is down here. And your evangelistic weirdos are over there. Okay? So how balanced are we in those sets of relationships? Now, we're not all the same. You've noticed that, haven't you? You're different from the people next to you. So you will do your out as an individual different to the way I'll do mine. Your up might be different. Some people love to sing to worship God. Other people, despite what it feels like around here, don't like singing as much to connect with God. We'll we'll do these things differently But when you strip away what we're doing and you look below the surface, then we need to find these three things in tension in our lives. If we're going to take the model of Jesus seriously, who went through the whole of his uh, ministry, balancing these things very carefully. Let's call him Simon. Can we have the screen up just for a moment? Okay? Let's call him Simon. Did you know that we share 97% of our DNA with gorillas? You see, the slightest difference, actually, I hope you'll agree, takes the end product to quite a different place. (laughs) Steady. (laughs) Steady. Now... Sometimes I look at aspects of church, I don't necessarily mean our church, I just mean church generally, and I think, how did we end up there, given the DNA that Jesus had? Well, the reason is we we, we got unbalanced, we emphasised one or two in favour of the other, and we've ended up with something quite different. You see, we're good there, okay, we're much stronger there as a church. But when we talked a few uh, earlier on about about this today being about and, we have something and, what we're really struggling with is what's going on here. And what we need to do is drive the agenda in that direction. We can't lose any of this. If we lose this and do that, we'll be just as unbalanced and just as useful in God's kingdom purpose. So church can sometimes look a bit different because our DNA gets a little off skew. So we need to rediscover our balance. So we're thinking about up in and out as our balance as one aspect of what it means to capture something of the dynamic of life and ministry that Jesus left for us. But that was one of three things I promised you about Jesus' life and his ministry. The second is this, his strategy. What kind of strategy did Jesus employ to reach those around him? Well, before we think about that, let's think for a moment about our own strategy. And we have one. Our strategy for reaching people beyond our existing community can be summed up with those words, come to us, do our thing, And if you don't mind, would you do it our way? If you don't like doing it our way, then go to another church and do it their way. So we're encouraging people to come and join what we are doing. We are overwhelmingly attractional, as in we're putting something on that we want to attract people to. And what we put on is not a set of relationships, but an event. So we put on events that we want to draw people to because of the event. Now, BST, the big, the small, and the talent, British summertime, that's the way we've often talked about, if you've been on a membership course in the last 10 years, you will have heard this, 
about what kind of good member are we looking for at Burlington? Well, we want someone to be committed to the big. We want someone to be committed to the small, because we recognize that big and small do different things in our life. And we want people to offer the gifts that God has given them in service. But all of those things are about drawing people. Drawing people to the event on a Sunday where you have to do things our way. I even tell you when to stand up and sit down. It gives me a wonderful feeling of power, but that's how much we've become used to the the dynamic of this is how we do it. You join in, or you don't. Small group. It's set out what we do in our small groups. Small groups offers a bit more flexibility, but effectively, we're doing this event, and we're inviting you to join us for this event. Acts of service... We're asking you to do things to help us put on our events and support our buildings and support our our small groups and so on and so forth. But then what about the other things that we do? Well, we talked about some of these, uh, like uh, Puzzling Questions or Christianity Explored or Start or the Y Course or Alpha. We've done all of these in the last 10 or 12 years. Our best evangelistic moments are still on the come to us to do our thing and do it our way. Whatever it is, if it's a course, come and do our course. It's our course, we'd like you to do it our way. Join in with what we are doing. Other church groupings, similarly, are about trying to draw people in by putting on an event. And at best, these events are often seen as adverts for the real thing, which of course happens on Sunday morning. So when we think of events that are outreach events, we think, well, perhaps we can create a really good event and people will love to be part of it. And then they might want to come to the real thing on Sunday because they've enjoyed that hook thing so much. In fact, I remember when I was leading one of uh, the little services that we have at the end of uh, term for Tiddlywinks and, and Toy Library. In fact, I'll say that in a minute, because up here there are some shafts of light in here about some of the things that we do. Let me come back to the story. Okay, remind me about the story. Everyone here? Okay, good. Tiddlywinks and Toy Library is a shaft of light because we're trying to offer a service. We're trying to meet a need that people have. But still, and please don't misunderstand me, there's no criticism in that sense of it. We're all in this together and we're all learning together. Um, we, we view that as, a, as an advert. Again, come on Tuesdays, have a great time. We'll look after you. Come on Wednesdays, we'll give you some toys and we hope you'll have a great time. And we hope we'll, we'll encourage you enough to come to be part of the real thing, which actually happens back here, but at quarter to 11 on a Sunday. So one Indian lady who's part of Toy Library and we do a little service or a little reflection in the church at the end of each term, perhaps Christmas and Easter. She opened the hymn book. This is the story, by the way. Don't need to remind me anymore. And she opened the hymn book. And she said, what's all this? I said, these are the songs that we sing in our services. She says, what, all of them? I said, I said yeah, it feels like. So think about, for a moment, how we go about our vision. Okay, there's the staircase. We're not changing our vision. We're not going in a different direction. We're still trying to make disciples of, uh, uh, of people, take people on that journey of mission and maturity. But the atmosphere, the context, the culture in which we do it is by trying to draw people to things that we're involved in. So Sundays, come to us and join our thing. Small groups is the same. Service, would you come and help us to do our thing? And outreach, well, we're doing this so that we can attract you so that you can come and do our thing, the real thing. And that's the kind of uh, context that we've operated under. And there's a number of observations that I've noticed about this kind of approach. And Julie hinted at some of them earlier on. The first is it's not very effective. We're working very hard as a church. 11 out of 10 for commitment, sacrifice and involvement. It's very labour intensive. And it puts disproportionate pressure on key roles. Have you noticed that uh, the whole hopes and dreams of the outreach of this church sometimes gets channeled into a course that's happening on a Tuesday evening that Julie's running? Can you see that? The whole hope and dream of reaching people gets channeled into that, puts disproportionate pressure on key roles. Sometimes you say to me, I've brought my friend, it better be good. What you're saying is the eternal destiny of my friend, Simon, is in your hands. Don't mess it up. No pressure then, at all. 
for me. So it puts disproportionate pressure on key roles. And as Baptists, we used to celebrate the priesthood of all believers. So taking our cue from Jesus, thinking about his strategy, here are some of the principles that I've tried to draw out about Jesus' strategy when it comes to mission. Who likes camping? Who loves caravans? Who loves to be going on holiday behind the caravan? This is a field. Sorry, the gate's a bit small. You'll have trouble with your caravan. Okay, there's somebody there on the field, and there's somebody there. Where are you going to put your tent? Yeah, okay, you're going to put your tent there, almost all of you. And I've seen your family. That's probably the right thing to do. Okay, get as far away from them as possible. But that John 1.14 in the King James Version says, The word became flesh and tabernacled, put up his tent. Where? Jesus comes and he puts his tent right in the middle of our tents. Jesus, when he came, did all the running. Jesus was always the one who was willing to cross the relational divide. He came to our place. He, in the culture that he was reaching, took on the culture of the people. He became a Jew. He spoke with a Galilean accent. He wore the same kind of clothes that they did, and so on. He crossed, in every sense, to our side to reach us. Do you notice how often in his ministry he was always at their place and never his place? Now I know it says he didn't have a home, but he went somewhere. He had bases, he had friends, but it was always their place. Zacchaeus, come to my house for tea. No, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house for tea. It was the Pharisee, their house where he sat down for a meal. Always their place. Jesus did all the cultural running. He crossed the wall, every wall, that divided him from others. This is a story about common folk. There were lots of folk, and then Jesus came, and that was good. And the result was church, people together, and that was good. No one quite knows where the wall came from, and that wasn't so good. Some people tried to shelter behind the wall. Some tried to make it taller. Then one day, they decided to build a tower to see over the wall and saw that things on the other side of the wall were a bit iffy in their eyes, and they wanted to help them. They thought, ah, put a door in the wall, a glass door even, and invited them to come. But they didn't. So... One went out, home to home, knocking on doors, inviting them to come, but that didn't really help. Then a group got together, went out, had a barbecue, grabbed one, pulled her back, and that was uh, good and bad. Then, one day, one of them went out, a long way out actually a very long way out and he stayed out his friends invited him to talk about what he was interested in he talked about God and the result was uh, like church and that was good and it grew and there was a rule an important rule in this new kind of church and this was it no more walls Jesus then did all the cultural running and mission in his image might mean the same. That we go to the places that are really uncomfortable rather than expecting them to come here, which for them is really uncomfortable. Relationships, not programs. The second point of these, drawing out some principles of Jesus' strategy. If you sit down a group of Christians in our Western culture and talk about a group of people that you want that group of Christians to reach, they will almost always talk about events that they could put on to reach them. We've done that 
all the time. I've done that over and over. We think about things that we could do. When Jesus came to change the world, the first thing he did was to engage in a key set of relationships. He hardly had programs, but he did have relationships. A set of relationships, Mark 3.14, he called them to be with him. So he gathered a group of people around him. That was Jesus' primary strategy for changing the world. Not an event or a program or a process, but gathering people close to him that he could influence, that he could build kingdom life into. Third principle, apprenticeship, learning through doing. We talked about this a few Sundays ago, didn't we, when we talked about Jesus saying, come, follow me. Now, every Jewish boy knew what that meant. It meant that you would not simply follow the rabbi, but as an apprentice, you would begin to learn to do what the rabbi does. You would watch, you would help, and then you would do. I haven't got time to look at it this morning, but Jesus takes his disciples through what many of you in business would perhaps talk about a learning square or a learning process, very basic learning procedures in order to ensure that the disciples would could practically live out the Jesus life. Our learning, though, is incredibly theoretical. We talk about what we should do, and then largely we're on our own. So it's back to Rachel learning to drive next month or uh, weeks after. It's like me talking to her about everything she needs to know to drive a car, and then saying, go on then, off you go. We talk about it all in here and then go, go on, off you go. That's not enough for me. I need someone to show me. Then I need to help someone who knows more than me. Then I need to do a bit more while they help me before I'll have a clue about doing it myself. They did life together, this new band of followers of Jesus, not events together. Mark 8.27 is a very crucial moment in the journey when Peter talks about Jesus being the Christ. But what I want you to notice is that it happened when they were on the way, when they were traveling along. This was a band of people that were doing life together. Events hold us together, probably a lot more than our relationships. If we took some of the events of our church away, then how much would we continue to relate to the people that those events have brought us together for? For Jesus, it was always the relationships first. And then lastly, Jesus' strategy seemed to meet, be all about meeting felt needs first. When blind Bartimaeus came to him, Jesus didn't say, well, what you need, Bartimaeus, really, is for your spiritual blind eyes to be opened. That was true, wasn't it? But Bartimaeus didn't understand that need at that point. So Jesus met him where he was and opened his eyes and so on with all of these. A paralytic man. Jesus says, look, you've got a greater need. I can forgive your sin and I can call you to get up and walk. I'm going to call you to get up and walk as a sign that I can also forgive your greater need, which is your sin. A sign of something more. The leper, how easily it would have been for Jesus to say to a leper, what you need, mate, is inner cleansing. Would that have been true? Was that the leper's greater need? But Jesus started where they were. It strikes me, and I I notice this in my preaching, when we have guests in church, I start by telling them what we think their need is in order that I can give give them the answer. So we spend the first little while of a sermon, an evangelistic sermon, explaining to guests why they really need Jesus. In fact, they're not interested. They don't feel that need at all. And so we try and give them that need, and then we fix it for them. So we end up fixing something that they don't feel they've got a problem about, and that's why they remain unconnected. Jesus met people where they were. He met their needs. And that went on towards something else. Let's look um, at at this in a bit more detail, but looking at at a specific example of Jesus sending out uh, a gang of people, the 72 in Luke chapter 10. Uh, Again, open your Bible there. It would be fantastic if you could. 10.41, thank you very much. Luke chapter 10, after this the Lord appointed 72, and verse 1, he says to them, go, not surprisingly, go, you be the ones that cross all the cultural divides. Don't expect people to come, you go, 
Verse 5, when you get there, speak peace to this house. In other words, when you get there, be a blessing. Be salt and light. When you get there, be a breath of fresh air. Be a cool breeze coming through uh, the home and their lives. Verse 6, look for the person of peace. A really important instruction from Jesus. Look for the person of peace. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. If not, it will return to you. In other words, look for someone where you will get a welcome. Jesus never asks us to keep preaching at people that aren't interested. Isn't that a relief? Look for the people that offer you a welcome. If you find a welcome, then verse 7, stay. Stay in that house. Let me just say something about this word house for a moment. A very important word, and we'll come back to it several times before we're finished um, today. The word oikos. Which means household. And it, it doesn't, it's not our kind of 2.4 kids or 1.9, a garage and a house and all that stuff. This is an extended household. And they lived in extended family sets of relationships. The uncle and aunts might have been present. The business partner, uh, uh, business partners might have been present. Uh, slaves and so on. So an extended family between 25, 30 adults plus children and so on w- would live as part of a household, an oikos, a, a community, an existing network of relationships. Now, we have those oikoses today, but they're not necessarily geographical anymore or familial anymore. We network with people due to the ways our lives have changed in different ways. But we have that, that's, those sets of relationships that's bigger than something small, and it's certainly not as big as a group meeting here uh, today. Jesus says, go to a network of relationships. Really important. A network, an existing network of relationships. And look for the person who will give you a welcome. What do you do if you don't get a welcome? What a relief, hey? That takes the pressure off. If you don't get a welcome, then move on. So you go to this oikos, you do get a welcome. What do you do when you get a welcome? Verse 7. Stay. Stay. We're not very good at staying, generally. We like evangelism to be hit and run. It's safer that way for everybody. Stay, what does that mean? It means long term, it means investment, it means intentionality, it means keeping going, what? At the relationships within this network. Verse 8 and 9 as part of that, meet felt needs, be a blessing, pray for people, uh, minister to people, and then verse 9, proclaim the kingdom. Jesus' strategy was about going out And in many senses, staying out. In our huddles that we've been piloting, and I'll explain a bit more about why we've been trying to do that a bit later on, we've been encouraging people to think about what it means to go out and perhaps to stick with those networks of relationships out rather than the temptation to scurry back in. And Katie's going to come and talk a little bit about her experience at having a go at that. I'm feeling the urge to scurry back in now, in case you're wondering. Okay. Um, I have a few non-Christian friends, and my dream for them is for them to know Jesus like I do. To know him as their friend, as their saviour, as the one who can be there for them when they've got troubles. So that's my dream. The best way I thought I could help them on this journey was to work really, really, really hard at getting them to come to church. But even then, to them, church can be very strange. Many of my friends have come to celebrations. They've come to my wedding. They've come to Christmas celebrations. Um, and they've simply said to me, wow, that was, that was beautiful. That was really nice. But they haven't even slightly felt the presence of God or expressed a desire to get to know Jesus in any way. They didn't connect church with getting to know Jesus. 
So I started to wonder what else I was supposed to be doing. It was then that I started in the huddles, and Simon began explaining the way that Jesus discipled people, the way Jesus got alongside people, and he taught them by his example. I began to realize that my friends are more likely to come to know Jesus or be interested in knowing more about him if I talk to them, which is scary. Because they know me and they can relate to me, they'll have a better chance of understanding who Jesus is if I explain to them what he's done for me. For them, a minister, forgive me Simon, preaching at the front, who they don't know, doesn't have a personal relationship with them, so his words don't carry as much weight as mine could. This was a huge turning point for me, and I realized it isn't about getting people to church. Inviting my friends to church was a bit of a cop-out, really. Um, It was my way of passing them on to someone cleverer and wiser than me. I've tried that, and it hasn't brought them to Jesus. Church is simply a building, and what I want for them is that they get to know Jesus. So showing them who he is through what I do, how I act, and telling them what Jesus has done for me is the better way. Jesus simply asks us to share our story with those around us, to love them and support them in the way Jesus loved and supported his disciples. So, soon after I realized this, God decided to give me a chance. Um, One of the friends from school, we were in the playground just playing with the kids, and she wombled up to me and said, so what's this religious stuff all about then? So I'm thinking, okay, God, this is my moment. This is the moment when I'm supposed to do something differently. So I explained a little bit about the difference between religion and faith. But then I got scared, and I panicked, and I went, oh, you can come to church. And she looked at me as if to go, oh, I don't know about that. And I thought, oh, no, I've blown it. I've done it again. I've gone back to my default position, and I've just invited her to church, And she doesn't even look like she even wants to give it a try. So I kicked myself, literally, said a prayer, and then I realized what I needed to do. But I was terrified I might say the wrong thing. What if I messed it up? What if I couldn't do anything to make anything better? What if I simply just put her completely off? But my need for her to know Jesus was greater than my fear. And I knew that I had to give it a go. What Simon had said to me had really struck home. I would really love my friends to know Jesus as I do. So I told her how he had helped me and encouraged me. And I told her about specific times in my life that had been really difficult that I knew she could relate to and how he'd helped me in those moments. I knew I had to overcome my concerns that I would mess it up. I knew I needed to be brave and open and honest. And so I shared those personal examples of Jesus working in my life. From that very scary step, um, loads more has happened, more than than I could have imagined, and it still scares me along the way. Um, God has given me more courage to speak to my friends about him. They ask me questions. I pray for them and with them whenever they need or ask me to. And a friend recently had a baby shower. So I organized it for her, um, invited all her friends from a different baby group that I didn't know, and decided that I was going to be brave enough to pray for her in front of all of them. And I did it. And it felt amazing. And I had so many conversations with people that day during the baby shower afterwards that I probably wouldn't have had because I'd made that brave step and I'd prayed for them in public. My friends are really important to me. And Jesus did life with his friends, with his disciples. And I want to do life with my friends. But that does mean getting involved um, in their lives and intentionally choosing to be there for them. So it means making time for them. I want to encourage them and support them and to show them how Jesus has encouraged and supported me and how he can do the same for them. What I didn't expect was a wonderful bonus along the way. They encourage and support me too. And they've started talking about Jesus, and they're willing to pray for me as well. 
which I wasn't expecting. So I am extremely grateful to God for giving me the courage to have that first conversation. My faith is growing, and I won't stop now. I won't stop talking to them about God. I won't stop encouraging them. I'm determined that they're going to know Jesus, and I'm going to do it by doing life with them. I'm going to show them what a difference he's made to me. And I'm praying that that makes a huge difference for them. I can already see it happening, but I want more. So I'm stepping out into new territory so that they can know Jesus. And I know that he'll do it, not me. God will do it, not me. But the big thing I've learned is church is just a building. And Jesus is the key that I want them to know. Give Katie a round of applause for them. So just to summarise where we've got to, Jesus' whole approach is about connecting with people where they are, staying with people where they are, meeting their needs where they are, and proclaiming the kingdom where they are. In contrast, Burlington's emphasis has been in recent years connecting with those who come to us and staying with those who come to us and meeting the needs we feel they have and proclaiming the kingdom as long as they are here. So we need to think about a different context, a different atmosphere, environment, culture, in which to help make disciples. And a summary of some of the things that we've been talking about is there. If you gather then the last 20 minutes together... And I realize we're, we're, we're racing through and you can't remember, and neither is the intention that you remember everything that's said, but just to give you a feeling of momentum as to why we're moving in, in a particular direction. If you gather all this last 20 minutes together, you get a mission and a discipleship that's quite different from the one that we are used to. We get a picture of a very different kind of church. Just for uh, one or two moments, I want to think about this disciple-making culture that Jesus created around those first um, disciples. What was Jesus' primary aim? Was he concerned about support, as in supporting those twelve, or was he concerned about challenging them? What we quickly see when we look at the life of Jesus is... Well, what do you think? Let me paint a picture before we answer that question and look at some of those readings. What kind of culture is Burlington? If this is high support at the top, and this is high challenge, so that's low challenge, and that's low support. Where where is Burlington on that quadrant? Well, I've asked enough people that question in a group where people can answer uh, and discuss. To know that we end up over here with so many churches. Typical uh, Western church is over here. We're high on support, but actually we're quite low on challenge. Now, if you're like most people, you'll react against that instantly and say, but aren't the services really challenging? Well, I'd like to think so, but in actual fact, it's not that challenging because you can listen to what I say, go out, or whatever anybody says, go out, do absolutely diddly squat about it, and come back next week and no one will bat an eyelid. Isn't that the truth? So, as a community, it's not that challenging. Now, low challenge and low support, well, that would be a pretty dead church, wouldn't it? High challenge and low support, you get some kind of wacky off-the-rails set up. And then as I want to show, Jesus brilliantly weaved about this sort of journey with his disciples. Sometimes a bit more support, sometimes a bit more challenge, in order to enable the twelve that he gathered around him to become like him. Think about those readings, Matthew 16... I'll just say what they are 
for brevity here at the moment. You can look them up at your leisure. Matthew chapter 16 is again that important moment in the Gospels when Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says in response, you're the rock, Peter, on which I will build my church. That's pretty supportive, isn't it? You're mine, Peter. I'm going to do something in you that will last forever. You can't get higher support than that. But a couple of verses later, Jesus talks about going to the cross, and Peter says what? Get behind me. Peter? Satan. You can't get much more challenging than that, can you? When was the last time in church someone looked at you and asked Satan to get out of the way? But that's what Jesus did. Very supportive and yet very challenging. Peter in the boat, you know, Peter gets out of the boat and walks on the water, and and it goes really well for a minute or two, then he sees the wind of the waves and he sinks. Can you imagine the the other disciples hauling Peter back into the boat? Never mind, Peter, well done, at least you had a go, we're really proud of you, we wouldn't have done it. That's our culture, really supportive. What did Jesus say? Oh, you of little faith. Jesus is way more challenging than the culture we sometimes create around ourselves. Those verses, Mark 3, verse 13 to 15, he called his disciples to be with him. You can't get much more support than to be with Jesus, agreed? And then he sent them out. How challenging is that for uneducated fishermen to preach the gospel, heal the sick, cast out demons and raise the dead? Okay, massively challenging. And that's what Jesus did brilliantly with his disciples. But you can only do that if you're in close relationship with the people that you're seeking to challenge. That you can be held accountable with the people that are around you. In the huddles again, we've tried to create, and that's why we want to do experiment with it, if we can create an environment that's much more challenging. Now, Julie's going to come and ask Chris Sheldrake a few questions about how the challenge in a huddle that was uncomfortable helped her move to a new place with what she's doing. Is Chris here somewhere? Brilliant. So, Chris, um, for those of us who maybe don't know, can you tell us, although I can't believe that anybody wouldn't know, can you just tell us um, a little bit about what your role here is at uh, Burlington? I'm one of the pastor workers here, which means we try and look out for people who are poorly, have problems, are new, um, and we try and get alongside them and help if we can. Um, so outside of serving us here, um, what do you do with the rest of your time? Um, I spend a fair amount of family time with my seven young grandchildren, which is lovely. Um, My husband Steve and I socialise with friends and we particularly love the theatre and having meals out, that type of thing. I belong to uh, Rashmere Women's Institute and have been a member there for many years. Now, Rashmere WI is a a large group and it's got many subsections. And I particularly enjoy talks on an absolute myriad of... um, subjects, topics, but the, and also the readers group, because I'm an avid reader if I get time, and the craft group. I won't make much comment on that, I just say I enjoy it. Um, and I'm on the committee. Um, how would you describe how you feel about sharing your faith? Well, actually, I find it really hard, really tricky I want to share my faith, I really do, but the right words, they just seem to disappear in a puff of smoke. I thought about this a lot, and I think it's perhaps I worry about being mocked, and I was mocked a lot when I was younger for many years, and I think that's sort of quite ingrained, actually. Um, so recently, um, you shared a story whilst in Huddle uh, of something that had really spoken to you. Um, can you share that with us now? Um, I heard this tale very recently, and I know others here heard it too. Um, 
a mother wanted her five-year-old daughter to play the piano. So after a few lessons, she took the little girl to a concert. Before the concert began, the mother got chatting to a friend, and she failed to notice that the little girl slipped out of her seat. When the mum looked round, to her horror, she saw that the little girl had gone up onto the stage and she'd sat at the grand piano and then she started playing a simple tune. The concert pianist came on the stage behind her and whispered in the little girl's ear, carry on what you're doing. And whilst the little girl played her simple one-finger tune, he played around her. And a wonderful sound filled the hall. And it really struck me. And I only heard that story two or three weeks ago, but it's gone round and round in my head. And it really struck me that that God was saying something to me. Do the bit that you're good at and leave the rest to me. I will help you. I'm right here with you. Together, we can make a difference. Well, that's a really wonderful story. But after you shared that in the huddle, what happened next? Uh, well, I sort of began to realize that I didn't need to be clever. I didn't need to have all the right words. God can make my little gifts into something beautiful. But now the hard bit. But after telling the group this... I wasn't allowed, it wasn't allowed to remain as a vague idea. I really needed that kick to get me to really apply what it was that God was saying to me. I was challenged to really think about what he was saying. And that was a very uncomfortable place. It would have been easier and much less embarrassing to move on or just leave it very vague. But we didn't. And with the group's help, I could hear that God was saying, use your pastoral gifts to reach your non-Christian friends and acquaintances. But I wasn't even allowed to leave it there. Specifically, I was asked, start with one person, and who is that one person you're going to start with? Instantly, I knew who it was. I took flowers to that lady the next day, and her reaction was amazing. And I wouldn't have got that far without really being pushed by the group. So um, how are you feeling about sharing your faith after that? Um, More able, less intimidated. I realize that sharing my faith must start with building good relationships And I can do that bit. I realise I need to be more intentional in all my relationships. So um, how has it been being challenged and then held accountable in the huddle? How has that been for you and how has that helped you grow? Well, actually, it was not a comfortable place or easy place at all in the beginning. But all the others in the huddle have helped me to listen to God carefully and then pushed me to make a plan of action. But then I had to make sure that I acted on it because next time I met them, they wanted to know if I'd done what I said I was going to do. So it's not easy and it's not comfortable, but I am growing and I know I am growing. And in a way, I've found the experience liberating. I now feel more able, but only because I put myself in that uncomfortable place of being challenged and being held accountable. Thanks, Chris. That's great. Thank you, Chris and Julie, very much. We're going to have a moment to stop and respond in in just a second or two. But I want to pick up uh, where Chris finished off. Because if if, if we are here uh, and we have to move here, 
It's not as simple as that. If we move from here to here, what it feels like, and feelings are important to us, aren't they? What it feels like is that we'll go down here. Because when you increase the challenge and you maintain the same level of support or even increase the support slightly, because the challenge has gone up, it feels like support's being taken away. Do you understand? These things are relative to one another. And churches have traveled this journey countless times now to move from this place to this place, but they often find themselves going through this valley here, which is called the valley of the shadow of death. And that's because it's hard, that's because it's messy, that's because when a community finds itself down here, or an individual like Chris was talking about, it feels uncomfortable, disturbing, things that we thought were solid seem less solid, not quite sure where we're going, and the the worst thing at that moment is churches go through the pain down here, and then they go back up here to the safety of what they know. So as we travel a journey together, and it gets hard and difficult, and you feel all at sea, remember you heard it here first. Okay, let's be under no illusions what it might mean to create a more challenging environment. But as both Katie and Chris represented, that brings a freedom, a new liberation that we haven't known. What we need then, essentially is to change momentum, and I'm concluding with this. At the moment, the momentum is all inwards towards the centre. We think about what God does when we come together. It's all here. What would it mean if we got rid of that and created an environment where the centre was always pushing out? What would it mean if we were a church that had a really strong centre, which is what we have at the moment, and we have a really strong Could it be that God works at the edge as much as at the centre? Could it mean that God would do different things for us at the edge? This is the missional church. Simple. In the past, churches have spent large amounts of resources to construct the most attractive places imaginable for the community in which they were situated. Great music, compelling teaching, and a host of programs designed to gather people together were the staple of such church communities. Anyone who wanted to come was welcome, and church members were encouraged to invite their friends and neighbors. Generally, people had a pleasant experience. The people who came and were cared for seemed relatively similar. Education, income, pastimes, race, struggles, and histories seemed to be almost identical. Eventually, someone asked the question, What about all the people who aren't like us, but who live around us? Why aren't they here too? In response, the church increased its marketing budget, direct mailing the community, taking out ads in local papers, buying radio time, releasing a fresh web page and offering to host the world's greatest event. The church was determined to be the center of everything great that happened in the community. Church members began to rely on the church to do the work of conveying God's story in the world. If someone could be brought to an event, they could hear about Jesus from a professional teacher. 